Have you ever seen the scene of a child in a car on a long trip and the child continues to pester the parents, are we there yet? Of course the parent says, no. And the child waits for a few moments and asks again, are we there yet? And the scene goes on and on and on. What's going on in that scene? Is this merely a game? Is this merely child silliness? Or is there something deeper, something fundamentally, something deeply depraved happening there? Well, after examining our passage in Jude chapter 1, verse 16, I hope you're able to better assess of what characteristics are really going on there and how funny or silly or not so silly they really are. So in light of that, please open your Bibles to Jude chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause the visions, worldly people, the void of the Spirit. So our passage here describes the wicked in nine different ways. They are grumblers, malcontents. They follow their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. They are scoffers. They are people who cause divisions, that is to be divisive. They are worldly people, and they are devoid of the Spirit. Now this list can be broken down into three sets of threes. There are three sins explicitly regarding the mouth. Grumbling, being boastful, and being a scoffer. There are three sins describing the attitude. They are malcontent, they show favoritism, and they are divisive. And there are three sins that show the direction of their lives. They follow their own sinful desires, they are worldly people, and they are devoid of the Spirit. And thus we have three sets of triplets. Now Jude is full of triplets, the whole book is... uh, packed full of them. Now, this set of triplets, though, how intentional is this? I'm honestly not sure, but I do think it's helpful to group some of these things together to see their relationship to one to another. Essentially, we're putting them together in these groupings so that we can have manageable sections to put our hands around. But another strategy of how to encounter this large list would just be to just take one at a time, just go down the list. And that's the one I prefer tonight because it's just easier to follow along. So let's go ahead and take a look at the first sin on the list, that of grumbling. So what is a grumbler? I went to Merriam-Webster, and here's the first two definitions. Definition number one, it's an irritable and complaining person. Definition number two, a person who makes frequent complaints, usually about little things. The Greek word here is gangudzo, and the only reason I bring that word up is because there's a little bit of onomatopoeia going on there. You hear that word gangudzo, it's just grumpy. There's this little, there's a sound here that uh, expresses kind of what's going on there. In fact, if you think about the word grumpy, grumbo, gangudzo, they all seem to have that gras sound in the beginning of it. I don't think that's accidental, it's kind of the, the sound grumpy and Grumblers make, they kind of growl under their breath. Now, beloved, this is 
to be a description of the wicked. It's certainly not to be a description of you. The root word for grumble shows up 15 times in the New Testament, shows up 38 times in the Old Testament, which means that that's a total of 53 times that the word grumble shows up in the Bible. Now, that's a lot of grumbling. And maybe as you think about the Bible, you can remember some of the episodes of this grumbling. Let's take a few examples of the grumbling that we hear in the Bible. We have the grumbling of the laborers in the vineyard. Do you remember the scene? There is the master, and he goes out, and he offers people a denarius, a day's wage, to work into his vineyard. And they agree, and then he goes out in the next hour, and they agree. And then all the way to the very end, the very last workers, he says, hey, come, I'll take care of you. And then he pays them all a denarius from the last to the first, and then the first grumble against the master because they receive the same wages as the new hires. What are they grumbling about? People grumble about God's grace. They grumble that God is gracious. In three separate passages in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees are described as quotes, grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They grumble at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus loves sinners and he wasn't self-righteous. He wasn't holier than thou and was willing to love and touch and fellowship with those who were rejected and vile, repentant sinners. In John chapter 6, verse 41, it says, The Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. These people are grumbling about theology. They grumble that it's not always easy to understand. Now, some of you theologians might be able to relate to this. Why is it so difficult? Why are these passages complicated? Grumbling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul compares believers to the wilderness generation of Israel. In explaining the, the sense of how we're like them, he says that they were baptized into Moses, just like we were baptized into Christ. They ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink, just like we eat spiritual food and drink spiritual drink. It even goes so far to say it's the, the spiritual food that they drank And the spiritual food they ate and the spiritual drink that they drank was actually Christ. His point is he wants to see that you are just like them in some sense. But in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, he says this about that wilderness generation. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So why was God unpleased with this wilderness generation? Well, verse 7 says they were idolaters. Verse 8 says they practice sexual immorality. Verse 9, they put Christ to the test. And then verse 10, they grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, brothers and sisters, in some churches I've been into, this seems to be a description of the people in the church. That should never be the case. Because this is a description of those who are outside the church, those who are false believers. And God forbid that this be a description of you. And if it does describe you, if you can look in the mirror and say, I'm a grumbler. I grumble a lot. Consider the words of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do, not, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And in Galatians 5.19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. Dare we put grumbling there? Most certainly. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, being a grumbler is unacceptable. We are born again, and this should have no place in the Christian life. Philippians 2.14 gives us uh, a command about grumbling. It says there, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It is true that we live in a world full of grumbling, grumbling against God, grumbling against men, but that doesn't make it okay. That makes the world fallen and sinful and wicked. And that's why we are to do all things without grumbling, without disputing. This is one of the ways that we can shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. If everybody at work is grumbling and complaining, and you don't, you stand out. You let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Even you who are in family, if all of your siblings are grumbling against your parents and you stand up for them, or maybe just suffer in silence, you once again stand out. Now, how can we not grumble? One, we have to make a conscious decision to refuse to grumble. And this is not by being a stoic, being divorced of all emotions, being divorced of all feelings. No, we have feelings and they're made by God and they are good. We cannot get rid of our feelings. But the way that we can stop grumbling is found in 1 Peter 4.19. Peter exhorts us, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We can stop grumbling by entrusting our souls to God and continuing to do what God has entrusted us to do, namely to do good works. We're to devote ourselves to good works. We can also hold on to the promise of Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love the Lord, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of our grumbling refuses to take in consideration that this very thing that we grumble about is the very thing that God is using to conform us to the image of his son. There's an interesting book by Randy Alcorn called uh, Falgren, and it's uh, actually built off the same thing of screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis. It's a modern rendition. And it's the same thing where Falgren is the head demon. He's writing to another demon. And in that book, something interesting, there's a little gold gem in there. And Falgren is writing to the lesser demon and explaining that so often Christians pray, God, conform me to the image of your son. I want to be more like you. I want to be more holy. I want to be more righteous. But then they complain about the very thing God uses to answer that prayer. I thought that was a profound point. We want to be holy. We want to be righteous. We want to be godly. And God says, I'm trying to do that. And then when he does that, we grumble. We grumble against them. We remember that all things work together for good. It changes our perspective on our situation, and hopefully we can be more content. Speaking of contentment, 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We could say much more about grumbling, but for the sake of time, we'll move on and look at the second sin on the list, to be a malcontent. Now, this one should go relatively quick because the definition of being malcontent can be discovered by simply just looking at the word and looking at its parts. The prefix mal means ill, and contentment, of course, is our outlook on the lot that God has given us. 
And so malcontent is somebody who has a bad outlook on their lives. They see what God has given them, and they receive that with scorn and anger and frustration. They don't want to live the life that God has given them. They want to write their own story. They want to be the captain of their own ship. They're mad that God is simply not going along with their plans. That God is not the magical genie here to serve you, but you are the servant of God here to serve him. And malcontentment is actually the underlining attitude that produces the wicked fruit for grumbling. So many things that I said about grumbling would fit with malcontentment. The way that we can solve our grumbling problems is to be content. Malcontentment is that fundamental root issue that we need to deal with. Now we'll skip over for the next phrase about them following their own lusts for the time being, and we'll come back to that. And we'll look at the phrase, there are loud mouth boasters. Now this description of them being loud mouth boasters refers to them being, as we say in modern language, braggadocious. In fact, even when I say that, you might think of someone who was known specifically for being a loud mouth boaster. A loudmouth boaster is someone who is arrogant and always brags about how awesome and wonderful they are. This is essentially Hollywood and celebrities. And sadly, before we just point the finger at them, and those are the loudmouth boasters over there with their Instagrams and uh, their Twitter feeds, with social media, many of us have tried to become our own celebrities. And we too use our social media to be braggadocious. And to be loudmouth boasters, always trying to put the glory on us. We are to be mirrors of the glory of God. It's one of the points of modesty. Modesty is not trying to get all the attention on yourself, but modesty is covering yourself. And so the attention can go on Christ. The opposite of being braggadocious would be to be humble and to have meekness. Recall the words of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, that one is great. See, Jesus changes everything, right? The world says, if you have it, flaunt it. That's what the world says. And Jesus says, if you have it, cover it, conceal it, and give me the glory. Jesus here talks about who's the greatest, the smartest, the wisest, the strongest, the fastest. No, he who is the most humble is the greatest. He who receives this little child in my name, he is the greatest. He who views himself as a child and God as the master, that one is the greatness. Greatness is not seeing yourself as mighty, but seeing God as mighty and yourself as a child, right? I want you to look at your life and all your accomplishments. Do you see greatness or do you see a child? A child standing at the feet of God and only everything that you have and all your accomplishments are nothing in comparison to his accomplishments and he deserves all the glory. And even the accomplishments you have, a God working through you. There's nothing to brag about. It's all the grace of God. What are we, great and mighty and awesome? Or children who need the Lord. The next item, the next sinful item here on the list, are those showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now here describes the sin of flattery and the sin of partiality. Job 32 verse 21 shows the proper attitude of the believer. 
It says, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. Now, what is favoritism? Favoritism is unfairly being partial to one in order to gain advantage. The idea is simply that you're going to shower favor on this person because you want a quid pro quo attitude. It's not the fact that you actually like them and care for them and want to see them built up. No, it's you care for yourself. And you feel that if you flatter them and puff them up, then you scratch their back and hopefully later on they'll scratch yours. Again, back to social media. Isn't this how social media works in so many ways? I befriend you, not because I really want to befriend you, because I know that you'll befriend me back. I'll follow your... I'm not exactly sure how all Twitter works, but I think that's kind of how it works at some levels. I'll follow your Twitter feed, so you follow mine. This can very well happen to the best of us. We could become flatterers. We don't speak to be positive and to encourage people, but instead we look for opportunities. And that's the real difference. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak good things about people. We should. In fact, it doesn't happen enough. One man said, I can live a month off one good compliment. Right? Compliment your pastors. Compliment your friends. Compliment your spouse. They need it. We so often take for granted the good. Our spouse makes us dinner for five days out of the week. We get nothing. They get no thank you. Nothing. And then one day we come home and we're hungry. And oh yeah, we're going to let them know how they failed us in that one time. It should not be like this. We should use our words to encourage and to build people up with sincerity. But the difference between flattery and encouraging is the, the outlook. Are you trying to build them up? Or are you trying to build yourself up? Are you being disingenuous or authentic? One is good, one is a wicked corruption and vile. And the devil, the devil is very crafty. He will often encourage you to flatter but never to compliment. And we have to be able to distinguish the two. And this is not some kind of uh, grand trait. It's, almost, it's amazing that people will boast in their shame that they're flatterers, that they know how to manipulate, that they know how to play the part. That's not a good thing. It's a very bad and wicked attribute. The next idea is this idea of partiality or, or favoritism. Favoritism is to pervert justice in order to court favor. And of course, as Christians, we cannot do that. We must be blind. Lady Justice is blindfolded. Because they just do based on the merits of the law. We shouldn't simply say, you know, this is the ruling. Oh, it's, it's my friend. Let me change the decision based on you. That is corruption, and that is something that the Lord will not do, and that's what we ourselves should not do. So let's look at verse 17. Verse 17 shifts from talking about false prophets to addressing the beloved. And these people are to remember or to bring to mind to predictions that Jesus Christ prophesied. They are to be warned. Now, there's a very strong contrast here in the Greek between these people he just described and you, the beloved. I want to camp out just for a second on this concept of being beloved. What does that mean? Being beloved means that your value and your worth is found in God. And that's what Jude wants to remind you of. That you, no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how others feel about you, God looks at you and says, you are my delight. Isn't that incredible to think about that? I mean, just think about being courted by your spouse and how good that must have felt that they loved you and cared for you and that they appreciated you. How much more so that God looks down and says, you're mine. You're my beloved. You're my special. It's wonderful to to consider that. And in light of that, as the people of God, we should love that which God loves. And that's why we love each other. So they're beloved in the relationship with God and they're beloved based on the relationship with the other believers in the community. 
So these beloved believers who are certainly not described as these grumblers, malcontents, followers of their own sensual desires, loudmouth boasters or showing favoritism to gain advantage, are to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. And what was their predictions or their prediction? It was that in the last time there would be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And that's exactly what has happened in verse 16. It describes the false teachers in this exact way. The only difference, if you look, look at verse 16, verses, verse 17 and 18, the only difference is the phrase, their sinful desires, is switched for the phrase, their own ungodly desires. And this, of course, is not a problem because they are synonyms. To be sinful is to be ungodly. Now consider that point for just a moment. That means everything that we hate Everything that is wicked, everything that's vile, everything that's wrong with the world, fundamentally, is that which is not God. That's what it is. To be sinful and vile and wicked and ugly is to be not like God. Because God is goodness, holiness, and beauty. That which we're looking for. Goodness, holiness, beauty, joy, happiness. That's all derived from God. And outside of God, the world is in rebellion with God. And that's why we have horror, violent, vileness, and that which is hideous. When God originally created the world, what did he say? It is good. And then at the capstone, what did he say? It is very good. And yet we look out there, and it's not very good at all. Why? Because this world is in rebellion against God. Think on these things, beloved. Think on these things. Psalm sixteen eleven says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to beauty, Pureness, holiness, and joy. The farther away, the farther that we leave those things. Our home is to be at the right hand of the Father, showered by his goodness. Let us not forsake the streams of living water for broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. Now let's also notice what the passage says is the driving motivation of the wicked. You see there in the passage, it says, they are following their sinful desires. Philippians 3.19 says of the wicked, their God is their belly. The wicked are driven by their sinful desires because they are enslaved by that which is evil. They would continue to return to the mire and fill up on the filth found in the swamp because they love that which is dirty and filthy and nasty. It is this very addiction that Christ has come to free us from. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But then in verse 36, he says, But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So when we talk about people being slaves of sin, what are we talking about? Are they zombies? They have no brains? No, they're addicts. They're things that they love, things that they pursue, things that entrap them. They are slaves based on their addictions, just like a, a drug addict is a slave. We see that. People who are slaves to the bottle, people who are slaves to drugs, they just can't stop. In some ways, sometimes they don't even want to, at some levels, but they can't stop. How do they get free of this? They need an intervention. And that intervention is a divine intervention from the Lord Jesus Christ to break these people from their slavery and to give them the freedom that is in Christ. In Christ, we are free. We don't have to be hopeless. We're not hopelessly addicted and chained to our sins. Now, does this mean that we are perfect? By no means. None of us are perfect. We continue to struggle to some degree, and when we do, we repent. We repent of the slippage that happens in our lives. But we are free. 
Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We are free in Christ. And there's a big difference between slippage and plunging. I've been recently studying uh, baptism. There's two words for baptism, bapto and baptizo. I don't know why I'm getting off on this. Some people try to say the word bapto means to lightly dip, and the baptizo means to plunge. That's not true. But, however, this is the difference between the wicked and Christians. We sometimes dip into sin. The wicked are plunged, immersed, and they stay under there. That is the difference. There's a big difference between slipping and plunging head first. There's a big difference between fighting against sin and running headlong into it. And this is why legalism never has the cure of the power to cure sin. Legalism has no ability to change the heart. Again, their problem is that they are following their sinful desires because they are hopelessly addicted. And your rules will not get them free. In fact, God's rules won't get them free. Think about that. If God's rules won't get them free, then parents, sisters, brothers, husbands, wives, your rules won't make them free either. The only rules that will make them free is Jesus Christ. Everything else can be simply restrict that which is evil. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. What we need is a new heart. And how do we get that new heart? In Christ. We only get it in Christ. And thus we as Christians are born of the spirit and we walk in the spirit. But the godless are born of the flesh and they walk according to the lust of the flesh. And this is why the world that we live in is so wicked. Why is the world full of evil? Because they're in the flesh. And they follow the God of this age. And that's why we as Christians should not be surprised when we find worldly people in the world. And guess what? We shouldn't even be surprised when we find worldly people in the church. Because everything about the church is try to stop these people from getting in. But sometimes they get in nevertheless. We try to stop them. Baptism is one of the ways we try to stop them. By talking to these people and seeing if they really are in Christ, which is the whole point of baptism to symbolize us being unified to Christ. Sometimes they lie, though, and pretend, and they sneak in, and they enter into the church. And Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7 that we are to be, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, in the robes of baptism. They've already been baptized. They're members of the church. In fact, to be a false prophet is to be a leader of the church. Be warned, because these people will come. But inwardly, despite the fact that they have the profession, they look like Christians, they act like Christians, they talk like Christians, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Thus we should not be surprised when we encounter worldly people outside of the church, we should not be surprised when we encounter worldly people inside of the church. We also have another practice to get these people out. We guard the door, called baptism, and we kick them out, called excommunication and church discipline. That's what we are to do. So we should not be surprised when they come, because they will come, and they will be followers of their own sinful desires. In the little time that we have left, let's consider the last four descriptions of the wicked, and we'll try to go fast here. They are scoffers. They are divisive. They are worthy people. They are devoid of the Spirit. Now, what is a scoffer? 
A scoffer is someone who mocks the truth of God and they cast unbelief on the promises of God. Second Peter describes an example of the scoffing of the wicked. In Second Peter chapter, uh, chapter, Second Peter chapter 3, it says, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. And it goes on. But we find out here that this is the scoffer. It's someone who tries to make fun of the truths of God. It's someone who tries to make you feel dumb for believing God instead of believing the world, Satan, and the flesh. These people are swine, and they deliberately overlook facts because they're not open to the truth, and these people should be avoided whenever possible. Proverbs 9.7 says, He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. And our Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 7.6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine. If you do, they may trample them under, your, under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Be able to identify the scoffer. They're not open. They're mockers, and they're dangerous. You should stay away from them. The next thing he describes them as divisive. They seek to divide the people of God. They want to divide the people of God. Instead of being one in Christ, they seek to build their own little sects. They want to exalt themselves. They want to amass a following after them. Now, this is a clear sign that you have a false prophet. Do they exalt Christ? Do they exalt God? Or do they exalt themselves? And if they do, run. These people are divisive and unhelpful. Next, they are described as worldly people. That is, they are people who follow the God of this age. They reflect Satan because they are his children. This world is evil and wicked, and they are part of this world. They are in total rebellion against their maker. They are not, like we are as Christians, foreigners and exiles of this wicked world, but they are very much inhabitants of the world. And the last description that we have, as probably my favorite description here, is that they are devoid of the Spirit. And that's precisely right. These are not carnal Christians. They're not merely backslidden Christians. They're not Christians at all. They do not have the Spirit, and that is precisely the problem. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh is born of flesh, but Spirit is born of Spirit. That's what he says. He says these people do not have the Spirit. They're devoid of the Spirit. It's interesting in today's day that we never really want to call anyone out. We always seem completely unaware of people's salvation. I mean, there's some sense that we aren't able to uh, pull up the back of people's coattails and see an elect sticker. We're not able to see that you have the Holy Spirit within you. We can only see the evidence of that fruit. We can also see the lack thereof. And I want you to see the, the boldness of Jude. He calls them out. He said the worldly. He says these people do not have the Spirit. Some people live so ungodly, so wicked, they're so corrupt. They're described in this passage. And you can say, you do not have the Spirit. You are devoid of the Spirit. They are not Christians at all, and that is the problem. Now, we are not preaching moralism. We're not preaching that God saves you because you are good and because you are holy and righteous and because these attributes of being a grumbler, malcontent, and all the rest don't describe you. That's not what we're teaching at all. What we're saying is if the Holy Spirit lives in you, this won't be a description of you because you will walk in the Spirit, and the Spirit will cause you to have the fruits of the Spirit. This is a description of those devoid of the Spirit and are worldly and are living in the works of the flesh. 
So Jesus Christ is what gets us from being this picture into being a new picture. We cannot live in these things. And if we do live in these things, we are merely deceiving ourselves, and we are worldly and devoid of the Spirit. Paul puts it best in Romans chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? We're dead to sin. The decisive slavery to sin has been broken. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the gospel. That you become united to Christ. You become immersed. You become plunged into the body of Christ. And based on that union with Christ, he sends his spirit within you and you live a holy and godly life. We're saved by faith alone, but never a faith that is alone. God, who justifies you, also will save you. The God who says you are cleansed will also wash you by the washing of regeneration so that this no longer describes you, at least not in the whole. We can sometimes grumble. We do. We can sometimes be malcontent. It's true. We should not live in this. We should repent of these things as they encounter, we encounter them in our lives. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to him and be rescued from what you can never be rescued outside of him. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We thank you, Lord, that the description of this passage doesn't have to be us anymore. It isn't us anymore. That we all used to walk in the flesh, but now we walk in the Spirit. Lord, I pray if there be anyone who's in the flesh and dwelling in this, loving these things, that you would convict them, that you would draw them by your Spirit. And I pray that, Lord, if there be anyone in the Spirit who looks at this passage and sees themselves, they would repent and see that this is not the way that you have called them to live. This is not who they are. Help them to embrace their identity and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.